Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Value Added, the real estate podcast. On today's episode, we're chatting with Nick Moore. Nick is an Atlanta, Georgia-based real estate attorney. He founded the Capital Law Group of Georgia. He is also a real estate investor, primarily in the multifamily and self-storage space. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Welcome to Value Added, the real estate podcast where we speak with the brightest minds in the world of real estate who provide, create, and realize value in an ever-changing market. And now your host, Nick Walters. Listen, man, we're live. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about life down there in uh, in Marietta, um, and hear a little bit about your career. You come from a yeah. a, a law legal background. Um, tell me a little bit about your career leading up to this point. Yeah, started in 2012. Um, just picked up commercial real estate and and just kind of ran with it. Um, you get going and. You know, in certain practice areas and life just happens and you just put it together and kind of parlayed that into multifamily, parlayed that into self-storage. And then before you know it, you've got a, you know, you got a portfolio and you got a, you know, a lot of good clients. So let's talk about your portfolio. Are you, um, are do you, do you own property, um, as a general partner, are you a passive investor? Um, how, do, how do you separate your, your investment business with your, your, uh, your legal uh, advisory business? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I do have some personal holdings uh, as well as just provision the transactional services for the firm. So I got some GP ownership and multifamily uh, and self-storage and really trying to, to build the portfolio in the self-storage space. Um, it's had some fragmentation, there's, but there's been some consolidation with some of these larger groups. The bigger players, in, in my experience, are going 200 doors uh, and over. Uh, but there's a serious opportunity in the sub-200 door uh, asset class. Uh, so my partners and I kind of move strategically through that. Obviously, my value add uh, play on the show is, uh, is to bring in you know, the legal sophistication, right? So they don't have to worry about going out and contracting that, you know, and worrying about trying to negotiate what they're going to get as part of the services or, you know, is this attorney going to bill me? Cause you know, I asked a question, um, but to be there and work, you know, hand in hand. Um, and, and so that, that's been a treat for me. Cause I, you know, I'll be honest with you, Nick, I, I, I only want to be an attorney for so long. You know, and um, there's not a lot of good stats working in my favor in terms of being an attorney and generating wealth to the extent that you can retire early or provide for your posterity in any kind of substantial way. Um, but with strategic investments, as you are well aware, um, that opportunity is much more real. Now, I have a successful practice and I'm, I'm blessed for that. Um, so the more that I can use, because really, even more than commercial real estate, my practice, my external general counsel and servicing uh, mid-sized and smaller businesses um, really comprises a, a predominant amount of my business in, in cash flow. Um, so that being said, try to inject cash in the deals for which I am an operator. I'm actually not passive in any investments. 
um, when I got involved in commercial real estate, I saw quite clearly which side of the GPLP I wanted to be on um, and have just kind of aligned myself, um, you know, with that path. And like I said, you, you do that for a while and you get to look back and, and see um, what you've been able to, you know, to, to put together. Um, so let's go back to 2012, 13, when you got out of law school and, and you, you said that you just kind of fell upon, uh, real estate. Was it, uh, when, when did the, the light bulb flash on, um, that, that told you, um, you know, I'm going to build a legal, uh, a legal, uh, business, um, as a transactional attorney in this space. But I, I also see a lot of potential in, uh, building a portfolio of income producing properties. Uh, when did that light bulb go off or how did it go off? That's a good question. So there's not really any true inflection point where, you know, or an aha. It's funny. I, I came from a, a, a comfortable childhood, um, but was immersed in the real world very quickly. Um, that, that umbilical cord, if you will, was, was snipped pretty cleanly uh, in, in my early adulthood. Um, which of course had its own host of issues at the time, but which I'm forever grateful because it's created a work ethic in me. So my, a friend of my uh, friend of mine's mom, that is grammatically correct, uh, worked at a law firm, and she was like, "Hey, why don't you come over here and help us out?" And I, of course, I always was big talk. I'm going to be a lawyer and do all this stuff. So I I called her up one day, and I think I was selling shoes at the mall. Um, hopefully. Nobody holds that against me. Um, but uh, I had a bad day, as one does selling shoes at the mall. And I realized I should call Connie and see what this opportunity is all about. And so sure enough, hit it off, came in, worked at the firm, got my hands on McDonald's files, okay? And realized, secret, commercial real estate's not that hard, all right? It's just not. And... So when I recognize that, and it's kind of ironic because I actually probably did the poorest in property law in law school. So while I was in law school, I'm like, well, I'm not going to do property law because apparently I can't, (laughs) right? Uh, So it was ironic to get my hands on the actual practice of it and not only enjoy it, um, but find that it was easy to work through that uh, predominantly the clients were pleasant and happy about what they were doing. Um, McDonald's was a little bit different. Now that I'm in the more private space, the dynamic, of course, is much different. Um, But I recognize the kind of money that could be made because you look at these settlement statements and you see how much money is going to whomever. And you'd see the law firm and they're nice sums. You know, when you sell shoes at the mall, you're not getting, there's no line item for you on any settlement statements. You, you know, you get your few bucks and you, and you move on. Um, so I, I kind of was able to create um, sort of this or had this perception that, um, you know, and I created this idea of who I wanted to be in my mind and I just went after it and it was dressed and sharp. It was speaking well, it was speaking clearly. Um, it was staying professional in professional environments, but also being casual in casual environments. Um, and then once I realized that I've had success with these operators, the logical next step is to be an operator. Um, so it was more of an evolution. It wasn't any, any singular inflection point, but more a process and a development also, which comes with 
just maturity and life circumstances and things like that. Um, did you have and, to, did you have to develop those skills that you just mentioned the, you know, obviously, you know, dressing the part, um, you know, with kind of, you know, being a chameleon with the, the environment that you're in, um, or, you know, public speaking, were there skills that you had to really, um, develop that you probably didn't have, uh, right out of college? Absolutely. So number one, public speaking. So I've, I've got a part of my practice as well as litigation and, you know, I still have a, you know, I have a, a social anxiety. I think everybody does to a certain extent. It's just to what extent have you overcome it or what practices do you have to suppress that anxiety that we have of, of natural judgment and things. And I think as I, as I garnered more success, it was easier to talk about accomplishments. It was easier to resist those insecurities and those feelings of not being worthy of whatever you're presenting and things. So there was definitely a natural development in that. Um, I did have some insecurities and to some extent still do, depending on the forum, where you step up and you're like, kind of think to yourself, that little doubter is like, who are you? You know, and, and so it's overcoming that. Um, but in terms of some other soft skills, you know, I've, man, I've been blessed with just the best mentors. Um, and to be able to, and I've, I'm an all-time great pretender. So once I actually found the success, it was easy because I had been pretending and not in a, not in a, um, not in a, 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 um, you know, false boastful way and not in a, a, you know, in any kind of disauthentic, which is not a word way, but you, you're able to see these guys who are established and these females who are established and you, you aspire to where they are. And naturally through that aspiration, you find yourself emulating them. And then when you get there, you will have emulated them to, to the extent that you have that it just, it almost ends up just kind of being who you are. And I think that's where people come up with the, you know, you're a, you're a, 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 a metric of the five people that you spend time around and, and you are the product of your friends and, and family because people, while they are them individual selves are a product of these people around them. And it's no different. Um, particularly in law, as you can imagine, there is, we're, we're a proud group. Um, and, uh, and, and for some good reasons and and some pretty superficial reasons. Um, but it's been a process and development on those things. And then the law itself, definitely you have to learn it. I mean, and that's where the mentors on the practitioner side have been so key. So to be 35 years old, um, on the younger part of my career, um, I was elected as a Georgia super lawyer uh, for 2021 as a rising star, which is reserved apparently for the two and a half, top two and a half percent voted on by other super lawyers. So to be able to kind of make that impact is just um, it's, it's humbling um, and, and just a combination of all those things that, that I just talked about. So let's put our attorney hat on um, throughout your career. You've represented both sides of the of the closing table, the the buyers and and the sellers, um, primarily in in commercial real estate. Uh, what has been the biggest challenge in uh, the transactional process? If you can, right off the top of your head, pick out a a a, a, a challenging transaction where you really had to put in an additional effort or bring in additional resources to represent your client to the to the the best uh, best extent possible and get a, a 
a transaction over the closing uh, over the finish line? Yeah, great question, man. And and the most recent transaction was crazy. Um, every transaction has its challenges, and that's what I'd love you know our group to to hear. Transactions, a good transaction and smooth transaction doesn't mean there weren't hiccups. Collaboration is paramount. The lack of collaboration is death to a deal. Um, you know, and that's where you know going back to the earlier time. I didn't even know we were on air. That's hilarious. But, uh, you know, talking about being a dude or, or in a, in, in just in the context of being a human being is what I meant by that, not in some you know, toxic masculine way. Um, but that, look, at the end of the day, you're, 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 you're all trying to get the deal done, you know, and, and so obviously, as you can imagine, with sales of, of any industry, um, you know, balancing personalities, um, you know, is, is perhaps the biggest hurdle to just maybe even life generally, but particularly with transactions. So this last one we had somewhat smaller deal, uh, three and a half million bucks, something like that. Little uh, multifamily um, project in, in Oklahoma. And uh, it, COVID has hit multifamily a little bit harder on the balance sheet, um, you know, or the, the income statement, I think, than maybe I've seen people admit and I don't know why that admission hasn't been out there because it's reality. And when you go to agency debt, like a Freddie Mac or a Fannie Mae, they have their own underwriting and qualification requirements. And you really either meet them or you don't. There's no like, oh, well, we like you. So we'll just forget that your economic occupancy was blah, blah, blah. So in this particular deal, we had a down month and, and they base their loan to value on the trailing three months expenses. And obviously one of those months contained a COVID impact month for them. Or that's, what they, that's what they claim. And, uh, and so because my, my client and operator is as prudent as he is saved enough money in reserves that we were able to absorb this reduction in loan to value when they took this T3 into consideration. And I actually, and it still didn't get us over the hump to be able to underwrite this thing. So another key is you want to make sure your attorney works well to, to put in these, these outs where if we don't meet certain thresholds that you can yank it and you don't forfeit earnest money and things of that nature. But I had to go to the seller myself and ask for a price abatement, not the broker, not the operator, me. And I'm like, you know, and here's a personality that's, you know, that's pretty big and, and strong. And I just called him up. And again, just the human, just the human element and was like, look, this, these numbers are just untenable. If you come down 150 K, I think we can get it done. And he was livid. But he understood where we were coming from, and he was a human about it as well. And I think I was able to kind of disarm him to a certain extent in the conversation, and ended up getting the deal done. Um, the jury's still out on whether it's going to be as good of a deal as we thought. We'll see. Uh, but we got it closed. There's a lot of opportunity there. Um, I was able to make a few bucks. My client was able to add to their portfolio and increased it by the seventy-five some odd units that it was. Um, but yeah, balancing personalities, getting that one over the hump, and then being that human to step up to the plate and and forge collaboration and getting it done was a was a win. Yeah, that's a big that's a big thing that you have to uh, you have to deal with are the the multiple personalities, the multiple people that are in a transaction. Everyone from the brokers to the attorneys to uh, the principals, probably the you know the the biggest personalities of of the whole group, um, depending on who you're who, who you're working with or who's across the 
the table from you. Um, you know, a lot of, exactly. a lot of what we do are, are herding cats and dogs, uh, to make sure that, that, uh, all the calendars are aligned and, and the, the, uh, the transaction continues to move forward. And it's, it's been very challenging in this, in this, uh, new COVID climate that we've been experiencing. Um, are you, do, do you invest, do you invest into, um, uh, these projects that you're that you're involved with um, on a, a, a legal advisory uh, standpoint. I know you you said you don't uh, invest as a, a limited partner, um, but um, are you uh, are you joining in on the um, the general partnership of uh, these transactions that you're uh, that you're closing for your clients? Uh, so yes, um, it. That's the nice thing about having the flexibility of my practice. And before I kind of jump into that, let me apologize in advance. I'm obviously working from home today. Um, I've got two dogs, a wife, a five-year-old. So to the extent any of them come in, my apologies in advance. Um, I, I hope we see them. I think it'll be it'll be good. It'll be good content. I mean, I don't know if you've heard my four, my four and a half month old screaming upstairs, but uh, we'll, uh, yeah, and. Yeah, we're expecting, in fact, we're expecting on February 9th as well. So uh, it's only getting more circusy around here. But man, I, I love being a family man. And they're way cooler than I am. <laughs> way cooler. Um, but yeah, so to answer your question, um, so since I have a smaller firm, um, I can be more flexible with my, with my, um, the way that I structure my services. I've done just purely transactional, I charge X number of dollars. Of course, there's either hourly or flat fee, depending on whatever we're working on. Um, you know, then sometimes I'll take a limited engagement fee and then I'll take a percentage of the GP. Um, or to the extent the percentage is enough, then I can go and do full non-engagement, full-fledged GP. That the last one is was just an evolution of trying to get more involved on the GP side. Plus I want to have that experience because I want to start sponsoring deals and being that principal um, soon. And, and having that historical performance is going to be key to getting that. So I don't have to overpay a key principal in the future. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the, the biggest challenges that, uh, your clients have faced, whether it's, it's, uh, on the buy side or the sell side, but talk to us a little bit about the chat, the, the most common challenges that your clients face, uh, during the, uh, the acquisition or disposition process of, uh, of a particular asset. Well, it's funny. So I would actually say in the entire, from soup to nuts, finding the asset is the most difficult. Okay. Especially in this, especially in this market, a very overheated market. Um, trying to find deals that pencil out, right? That that makes sense. Totally. And people, things getting bid up. You know, the rule. There are no rule. I mean, it's Thunderdome in commercial real estate. You know, I mean, you put things to bid. You, I mean, you you go out there and 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 people are savage to try and get as much money as possible. And, and again, I've been on both sides of of uh, you know of the closing table in those transactions, and they ultimately close because somebody has underwritten it to the extent that if there's a value add they're taking into consideration the increase in rents and what that's going to look like from a return perspective, whether refinance or, or selling in the disposition. Um, and 
or they're trying to get it cash flow. I've got a deal right now that we're, that I'm representing a seller on that we bought a year and a half ago and we're going to net a million dollars. There's not a million dollars that we did to this thing in 18 months. Okay. That's, that gives you, that's kind of a litmus for what people are doing out here. Now, this is a larger operator in this sense. Um, who's, I think buying this more for the cash flow of it. Um, because there, we already did the value add. So more stabilized. We got it hundred percent occupied. I mean, it's a beautiful asset. It just, I think is overpriced at, at the sale price, but yeah, awesome it, it because we're the seller. What, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and it depends on what the strategy is. I mean, you know, larger, so, larger shops or REITs, um, they're, mm-hmm. they're going to, they don't mind paying 4% for a, a four, a 4% cap rate for, um, you know, for, for a cash flowing asset. That's, you know, that's turnkey, but, um, totally. You know, it's, it's very hard to, it's very hard to, uh, uh, squeeze any any juice out of uh, out of some of these assets, unless unless the uh, the the seller has put into effect a renovation plan, and mm-hmm. the the buyer can come in and continue that plan. Maybe twenty percent of the units have been renovated; the other eighty percent need to be renovated. So there's some you know there there can be some uh, some some meat on the bone that way. Um, no. I've seen that and I completely agree. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, and, and to that extent, you know, in this one, well, let me get back to your original question. Cause I, I, I kind of took, took a little bit off track. Um, the, the, the biggest challenge intra transaction really and truly is the sophistication of the operator to, to, corro- to corroborate my litigation hats on to justify the purchase price. Do are they, do they know what they're looking at? And, and I've got to look, and I'm not, I don't do your due diligence for you. I don't, I can reconcile some documents. I can help and answer questions a little bit more involved, of course, where I'm the GP on the deal, but where I'm transactional in my engagement letter, it's very expressed that I'm procedural, right? I'm not so much substantive outside of these documents that are required of me to get the transaction through. So I'm not going to receive um, and, and review some of these documents Again, unless we talk about it and, and we work it into the deal, but as the operator, you need to know that stuff um, as gospel for your deal. Um, and to the, you're only as confident in your deal as you're confident in the materials that you reviewed and your understanding of them during your due diligence period. Because I've seen a lot of operators that are like, oh, I looked at everything. Oh, we're good. Everything's great. And then they get in and start operating it and they're like, what did I get? And then they come back and they're like, hey, I got this. How did that happen? I'm like, okay, well, send me this, that, and this. They send it to me and I'm like, okay, where, you know, was this underwritten? Did, where were you in this? You know, and talk about this. And, and it's, not, it's tough for them because a lot of times some newer operators, and I represent a number of new operators, there is a learning curve to this. This is not a go find your $500,000, buy this parcel, get your loan from Freddie Mac, and then, you know, then you're just cash flow and gold parachute. You know, it's not, it, it can work like that, but it only works like that for those who do the due diligence, um, I think, correctly or so diligently. So is, is that the biggest challenge for the, the new operators that you're referencing is, is going through the full, uh, the, food, the full due diligence process? Um, do you find some operators, these new operators, are, uh, they don't know the market maybe that well or, uh, and, and they're cutting corners in, in uh, in doing the, the necessary due diligence on an asset or a market? 
Yeah, I think so. So they've really the research that they do up front to find the asset. I have more confidence in that. I think they can find an asset. I think it's whether they can understand the operation of that asset because look, anything can look nice on the outside. I'm like, oh, I like Corvette, but I'm not like a car guy, right? I don't know how to get under the hood and see if this hose is there or you got some header over here and some blah, 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 right? It it's kind of works like that. So you've got it, but to get in and really know it, you have to know what you're looking, you have to know what questions to ask. You know, you know what information you have to confirm. Um, and when you don't know what questions to ask, that's where there's a little bit more handholding. And while the transaction will close, when the reality sets in that it maybe wasn't exactly as they thought it was, you get some, well, what the heck? And then I think a lot of buyers on newer buyers take for granted that your seller is going to be totally forthcoming and transparent and all of these things. And so what I try to do is in my agreements, draft language that gives us the ability of this sort of operational period after that says, look, if I get in here and it looks like your reps and warranties and some of this other information looks stale or should have been updated or modified to be true, um, which was otherwise incorrect, that we have some action and and um, some ability to remedy that. Um, so yes, um, substantively, um, the due diligence period is is the biggest issue for them. Procedurally, a uh, lot of handholding, which is actually what I enjoy to do because I let them know that I have command of the deal and I know exactly where we're at and, and all of that. But, um, you know, and I'm trying to think, man, because I want to give you gold on this thing. I don't want to, you know, talk around these issues. I'm trying to think of really, um, you, you know, and then reviewing loan documents. Please, Lord, review the loan documents. Know what you're getting. Confirm with your broker that that what they what they have provided you is what you were looking for. Is it a three-year IO and a 10-year note at 3.85% with a 30-year amortization? Like get your details down and get them confirmed because you don't want to come back after the fact and be like, because they'll just send you the signature pages. They're like, hey, here's the signature pages to the deal of the document that you read, you know, two months ago. Um, you know, we need these for closing, by the way, overnight and tomorrow. And you can get flustered as an operator. So it's taking that time to be scrupulous about it, go through those numbers. And that's the same lesson that I try to, you know, instill on the due diligence side is just be very scrupulous and vigilant in your document review, um, no matter what document it is. I'll hold your hand. We're going to get to the closing table. Um, we'll get all the funds wired. You're going to have some reserves and then you're going to go kick butt and, and return uh, considerable amounts of money to your investors. And yeah. So, uh, Nick, we're going to, uh, conclude this episode with the hard-hitting questions. These are the questions that we ask every one of our guests. Uh, the first question I always like to ask is, what is your why? Family, legacy, um, just personal respect, um, my Christian faith, um, just all the good reasons, man. Um, nothing superficial, nothing. It started off as the pursuit of, of money and became so, so much more than that. Um, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. It, uh, it makes a big difference once you, once you have kids, right? Your perspective on life completely changes as it did, as it did with me. Awesome, man. Yeah. Um, what is, uh, what's a recent book or another piece of media you've consumed that's provided substantial value to your life or your career? Well, the good book, of course, um, outside of that, um, 
I read, um, I love history, particularly U.S. history. Uh, guy Joseph Ellis writes incredible things. They're only a few hundred pages because after that, I'm like, I can't just hang in there. Um, I, I lost that in law school. Um, but I'm reading one called American Dialogue. And when you read about John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, and James Madison, and these founding fathers, it puts something in you to say that to be a part of something that's so much bigger than yourself is just, man, it's so empowering. And then, and then you couple that, you know, with, with your faith and it's just, I mean, you realize you're an ant, but with collaboration and giving things your best and living your best life, you really can make some impact. So, um, you know, he's not a motivator. Joseph Ellis is not motivational in any context, just that, just the esteem of, of, of the history just means a lot to me. If you were, uh, knowing what you know now, uh, what would you tell your 21, 22 year old recent college graduate self? Stop drinking. It's a good one. Next question. <laughs> I mean, really, it's really though. Um, uh, life is so much bigger than, you know, and, and you're so much smaller than you think you are, but you have so much more potential than you think you do. How can our listeners uh, get a hold of you, Nick, or learn a little bit more about you? LinkedIn, probably. Same bald face and everything on LinkedIn, man. Capital Law Group of Georgia um, can help you out nationwide. Um, I recruit local escrow to, to, um, to facilitate transactions. Um, you know, my email address is nmore at capitallawgroup.co, not .com. I think it was taken. Probably lost a million dollars in business by not having the M on there. Uh, but yeah, just uh, reach out to me, send me a message, send me an email. Um, love, love hearing from new folks. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to reach out. That's great. Hey, listen, Nick Moore, uh, we really appreciate the, uh, the time and uh, thank you so much for adding your value today. Greatly appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your outreach, man. This has been uh, a terrific uh, experience for me. And, and to the extent you want to get on here ever again, man, just uh, you know where to find me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to leave a rating and a review, which will help us introduce the podcast to other listeners. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will give you access to other episodes you may have missed. Lastly, if you'd like to learn more about investing alongside us, then head on over to valueaddedpodcast.com. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next week.